Hello everyone, welcome back to another episode of the podcast. My guest this evening is Sarah Hawkins and she is a registered nutritionist specializing in digestive health, helping people with IBS and improving their relationship with food. So Sarah, thank you for coming on the podcast. Thanks Anil for having me Dean, it's great to be on the podcast. Super. So, um, Sarah, you're, I actually don't know your credentials, so maybe you want to do a little bit of an introduction for yourself rather than me going off and butchering what you could probably do a lot better. <laughs> yeah, sure. No problem. So I am a registered associate nutritionist with the Association for Nutrition. So I studied a four year undergraduate degree in Queen Margaret University in Edinburgh, which then allowed me to register with the Association for Nutrition. So I moved into kind of freelance work more so this year um, with a special interest in sort of gut health, IBS, improving people's relationship with food. And the reason I've got such a kind of strong passion and interest in this area is because I've actually got IBS myself. And kind of since, I suppose, from a young age, I always used to get tummy aches when I was anxious about anything. And then it got particularly bad around the age of 19. So I actually, before I moved into nutrition, I did about six weeks of a degree in culinary arts in DIT, which I enjoyed in the sense that great crack, but I uh, decided that chefing was not for me after I gave myself food poisoning. After that bout of food poisoning, my IBS really got worse. Um, and then I suppose then when I decided that I was going to move country to Edinburgh, I just started a new relationship moved to Edinburgh you know the whole joys of moving country making new friends a new long distance relationship all this kind of crap going on at once that no wonder my IBS was absolutely crazy it was kind of like whoa what's going on hmm. so anyway IBS got really really bad that year and went to the doctor about a thousand times and was kind of told look do the low FODMAP diet take these um you know buscapan kind of anti-spasmatics and that was really all he could do for me because, as we know, doctors are extremely busy. They don't really have time to be kind of spending, uh, you know, time looking at these things. They also don't have mm. that nutrition education to really go into it. So anyway, tried my best with the low FOMAP diet on a student budget. Found it to be extremely difficult, uh, firstly in terms of kind of planning, timing, those sorts of things. Then the budget of kind of buying all these different foods. Lots of Googling, lots of kind of blogger information, websites all this sort of kind of stuff that was a terrible route in hindsight but at mm. the time obviously I think a lot of people who maybe have been through this sort of route of IBS will resonate with this you're just so confused and unaware of like where to go for help and then the thoughts of kind of going at that age when you know money really looking for a nutritionist or dietitian isn't always the option yes so anyway long story short that became a huge team in my undergrad then loads of research and stuff I did I think two dis dissertations and uh, different things looking at probiotics and IBS and things like that so through all that research and then experience and trial and error I kind of realized then that low FODMAP was probably not the best route for me and then I decided then that I kind of had enough of all this restriction and this fear of all these foods and the fear of kind of going drinking or going out with friends and making the symptoms worse that I kind of just got fed up and then I got this book for Christmas I think it was and I started trialing new recipes and through that I think the book was actually vegan 
so through that, I ended up increasing my fiber intake, increasing my food intake, and my IBS was was not cured. It was slightly better. And um, yeah, so then things kind of started to get a little bit better. And then as I sort of read a bit more into things of sort of like kind of stress and different things and movements, I realized that, well, actually, there's a lot more to the story than simply just food. Um, and then when I kind of put all the pieces together, kind of made a little bit more effort, a little bit more time for self-care and different things like this, um, things started to go in the up. And the kind of most key moment where the aha kind of came in was as soon as I kind of graduated college, my boyfriend at that point just moved over to Edinburgh with me. So that was one huge stressor gone. And then a stressor of like exams and different things. Everything really seemed to slow down and kind of calm down a bit. Mm. So anyway, there it was the aha moment of, okay, my trigger is stress and maybe some sort of like anxious feelings or different things like that. So this is why I find myself very passionate to try and promote the side of yes, food is a huge component of our IBS or our digestive health, but as to are all these lifestyle factors like stress, like kind of things like anxiety or mental health things, uh, the movement, uh, getting enough water, getting enough sleep. So this is where I'm at now, where I'm trying to kind of convey this message and try to help as many people as possible through that route, as well as the food, um, which seems to be really helpful to quite a lot of people. Yeah, so. awesome. There's there's a lot of different things that I want to talk about kind of in that intro, kind of like unpack mm-hmm. different areas of it. But to start at the very beginning, for anyone that may not be aware, can you describe what IBS actually is. I know there is different types of IBS, but for the person that doesn't know or may even be suspecting that they may have symptoms of IBS, can you describe it um, and the different symptoms and what the basic um, what the what the basic uh, factors of IBS um, are? Yeah, absolutely. So IBS is the kind of short version of irritable bowel syndrome which basically is just a collection of symptoms which can be really disruptive to uh, to the body and to the person. So IBS has to be, you know, there's different symptoms such as uh, diarrhea, constipation, pain in the abdomen, um, urgency to go to the toilet. Um, and those are kind of the main ones. And for some people, this can be a combination of these things. Um, and for some people, it's all of these things. The main thing to remember is for diagnosis, you have got to go to the doctor. And these symptoms need to be presented for about six months and uh, at least three of these symptoms all at once, which are consistent for at least six months to then be diagnosed. It has to be done with a, a actual doctor or a GP, simply kind of Googling your symptoms and uh, assuming that it's IBS is not really the best route to go because it can actually be something, firstly, it could be something a little bit more serious, like say IBD or uh, celiac disease. So we need to go to the doctor, speak to the doctor about our symptoms, get these issues kind of ruled out beforehand because these things can be a little bit more serious and more damaging. On the other hand, it could be something not quite as bad. It could just be that, you know, you might be suffering from bloating a little bit more so because you're maybe eating too quickly or eating a lot of food at once, or you might be feeling a little bit stressed now and then, or you might be eating something that doesn't quite agree with you, which might be giving you diarrhea, but it may not actually be IBS. So it's good to kind of keep that in mind that if you do suspect that you have IBS, uh, please do kind of take note of what your symptoms are or what you're kind of experiencing and then speak to your doctor about it. So he he or she, sorry, can actually firstly either rule out anything more serious or identify whether or not it is IBS. Hmm. 
think that answered the question. (laughs) Yeah, no, definitely. Like, I think because we all generally have symptoms and like everything, it's on a spectrum. We all generally have symptoms of irritable um an irritated digestive um system at some point in time whether that be as you say from stress or from a lot of the different factors that i'd like to get into as well but i think that you know the digestive system and gut health is a very complex thing and there's a lot that goes into it and you know as you said kind of at the start it's not just necessarily food that can be uh, disruptive to your digestion and having healthy digestion there's there's a lot of uh, psychological factors that goes into it and that, and that's what i find really really interesting about it um it's also because my my father has uh, or had um colitis which is a form of inflammatory bowel disease so that's different to abs um but as sarah said that's a much more extreme version of of um of uh of abs it's it's uh it's inflammation in the bowels but um i just generally find the whole that area of health to be quite interesting because as i say we're all um susceptible to having sort of disruptions in our digestion um but in particular it's it's not always to do with food as most people think like i think a common one sarah that you probably come across uh, quite often is that people blame bread (laughs) for automatic digestive issues so can you Mm -hmm. talk a little bit about that and if if that's something that uh that you come across that and much yeah that's I really feel bad for bread because I think it has such a terrible name and actually it's such a nutritious food and it's so handy and so easily available, so cheap. But bread is probably, yeah, one of the biggest ones when it comes to digestive complaints. It's kind of that one that demonizes the one that, you know, maybe it's gluten that causes it or this, that or the other. There's kind of two sides of the coin with this one. So firstly, when we actually look at the kind of composition of bread. So in terms of like the gluten, Gluten actually isn't a trigger for IBS. Gluten is a trigger for somebody who's got uh, celiac disease. So if somebody's got celiac disease, they are intolerant to gluten. Therefore, this has to be removed from their diet because it will actually cause damage to their intestines and cause an autoimmune response. So for these people, they have to avoid gluten. No, like, no questions, uh, no discussions, sorry. For healthy individuals who haven't been diagnosed with celiac disease, gluten actually isn't really an issue. There's maybe a small population who have uh, non-celiac gluten sensitivity, which is a different story altogether. But gluten is not a trigger for irritable bowel syndrome um, because it is actually a protein. And the thing with irritable bowel syndrome, the trigger kind of foods are, they fall under the umbrella term of FODMOPs, which are fermentable oligo uh, disaccharide, monosaccharide, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, they're carbohydrates and they, they're they different altogether. They're small, like sugars. So sugar and protein are two different things. So basically gluten is not a trigger for IBS. What can potentially be a trigger in IBS is the, um, what are they called? They're a type of sugar in it called fructans. Sorry, it went blank there. So it's the fructans that could be a potential trigger for IBS if that's something that triggers a person's IBS. It's not going to be the same for absolutely everybody. There's going to be specific 
foods that will trigger say my let's say me and then I could have a cousin who has has IBS and that might be totally fine for them um so it's good to be aware that it's not the gluten it could be the fructans that's the composition in the food that that would have the issue on the other side of things when we think about bread sometimes bread can be this sort of uh bad food which I want to put in inverted commas or whatever but um you know we we demonize bread we think it's the bad thing it causes us weight gain um you know it's the cause of all these issues so that sort of idea in our head can actually create symptoms if that makes sense so this is called the mm. placebo effect which is similar to the placebo effect where if we are given a tablet and we're told okay you've got a headache take this tablet it's going to get rid of your headache although this could be a sugar pill and there's absolutely nothing in there to get rid of your headache you can actually psychologically tell yourself that oh this tablet will get rid of my headache and then the headache will disappear this is a really interesting area of research but the nocebo effect is a sort of version of it in food so you might find somebody who for example someone might be given a list of these kind of FODMAPs and then they read okay lactose is a FODMAP I need to avoid that that causes my IBS mm. because you've read that and tell yourself that story sometimes it can get ingrained in your mind and then actually present those um those symptoms when you consume the food when actually it might not be a problem so it's that maybe nocebo effect which can have a, an impact on the consumption of bread in IBS or general digestive health and then on the other hand because of this food being so like on a pedestal of like a, this is a bad food it's really bold I shouldn't be eating it when we do actually get to eat it it's that sort of a last supper mentality where it's like I better eat as much as I can because tomorrow I can't eat it anymore so then we might yes. end up eating the food either quicker or we might be eating more of it because we know that tomorrow is another day and I cannot have it. And then it's more so that volume of the food that's going into the body that can result in the bloating. So if you think about, you know, the the, the stomach is, is a sac essentially. It's a dynamic sac that, that will expand and contract in response to food or liquid or these sorts of things. So it's kind of similar to like a balloon, say. So if you have this big volume of half a loaf of bread going into your system, that's quite a lot of volume that's going to make you, you know, it's a volume of food going into your stomach, which will then expand, which then can look like bloating when it's actually just a volume of food going in that is yet to be digested. So that's an issue. And then the other side is when we eat quickly like this, you know, we're not fully chewing the food. So that first mechanical digestion of the food in the mouth isn't taking place. So larger particles are going to go into the stomach and the digestive tract. And then there's the air that goes with that when you're you know, for example, if you if you eat a bowl of pasta or spaghetti and you suck it up, the air goes in as well, hmm. which is sometimes then that air going into the system can also kind of increase the, the air in the system and the pressure. And that's where you sometimes see bloating. So there's a few different things to think about there. So firstly, there's the fructans instead of the gluten in the bread. So that's a potential issue. Then we have the actual, you know, bread is bold. I need to eat it and get rid of it. So the volume of food could be causing an issue there. Then the air being sucked in with it and the lack of the mechanical digestion in the mouth pro providing kind of larger particles going into the system, which is a little bit more difficult to digest. Hmm. Yeah. Um, like I think, as you said, bread is 
heavily demonized and I don't think there is as much of a trend with gluten-free stuff as there used to be but definitely a few years ago uh, everybody was eating gluten-free stuff because gluten was demonized and as you said it's often other factors unless you have celiac or non-celiac gluten sensitivity you're probably going to be okay with gluten-containing products um, and that's not just bread it's as you said pasta um and things like couscous and, and stuff like that generally products that are made with um wheat because gluten is the protein in wheat um but like one thing that that uh, you said there resonated with me in terms of what i see a lot with clients is if i have a client and she is a busy mom and she's on the go and she's trying to make sandwiches for everybody and then you know everyone's like especially during lockdown everyone in the house is screaming at her she's in a stressful environment and she just throws a sandwich in it's it's one of those bread is one of those foods that you can eat very quickly very rapidly and, and in a stressful environment um and it's commonplace for that and that in itself uh creates a lot of issues kind of as you said a lot to do with those different factors that you mentioned but stress in itself is is a huge factor um when we're talking about digestive health uh but so what would you say sarah if if a client came to you and she he or she was really struggling with um some of these potential digestive issues what are some things that you might try with them first i know there's obviously a lot of trial and error with with a lot of these different um recommendations and modalities and stuff like that but what's some of the first things that you personally do with clients that are struggling with some of these potential issues yeah, so I kind of like to start with the kind of least restrictive and least effortful route possible. So to begin with, we'll have a conversation where we'll just talk a little bit about their life, you know, what they do for work, what their family life is like, um, what their kind of day-to-day -day looks like. You know, I think particularly in a pandemic, it might be slightly different, but generally we'll give a go of what's it like normally and what's it like now. And then through that, I can maybe identify little things that maybe, okay, this might be a little bit stressful or this could be causing an issue or, you know, then identifying, are they making that time for sort of like, you know, relaxation and taking days off? Is there a lot on their plate? Like, have they a lot of family commitments on top of work commitments? Maybe have they got some study commitments or, you know, different things like this. So I think that's the kind of the first step, have that conversation, see what their life is like uh, to begin with. Then we talk a little bit about food and whether or not they have, maybe different um, dietary patterns or food that they avoid, uh, foods that they eat all the time. Then we talk a little bit about how they're eating. Is that with a lot of distractions? So could they be sitting, eating their lunch at their laptop because they have a jam-packed day full of work, which for some people is really hard to avoid. But um, just to get that idea, then also are they having dinner in front of the telly? All these sorts of things, maybe they're texting while they're eating. So looking at how they're eating as well as, kind of the their lifestyle pattern and then I think that what they're eating will be more so towards the end because I don't like to put too much of a focus on the food too early because then it can become a thing of oh god I'm eating the wrong thing or sometimes people can get really stressed about telling people what they eat like mm. particularly a nutritionist they feel this sense of kind of guilt or shame that actually I really enjoy having some chocolate after my dinner 
Whereas for me, I'm like, that's totally fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But they find that really hard to say to some people. And sometimes they say that, like that with the bread. Oh, I often have like a, a, a sandwich at lunchtime. And, you know, it's almost like, a, oh, I'm a terrible person. I was like, actually, that could be hmm. a really, you know, balanced meal. And that's totally fine. So I tried to kind of leave that little bit, a little bit towards the end because I don't want to, you know, put that pressure on anybody or make anybody feel guilty or shameful or that they have to hide anything. I think when you have that conversation at the beginning, you can kind of build that kind of relationship and understanding they kind of get a feel for how you work or what you're like as a person whether or not you're going to judge them for those sorts of things and that can kind of build that little bit of a relationship beforehand if it looks like they've got the perfect life that they're you know their stress management is on point they you know they they have their boundaries and um, they're eating perfectly and things like that um, then we can maybe look at the food and that like not that I'd never look at the food but I think that's always going to be a little bit towards the end Hmm. Yeah, no, it's, um, I think, uh, looking at the person's internal and external environment is, is essential, really. Um, and what I mean by internal and external environment, your internal is your mind, your, um, inner thoughts, your, your beliefs about yourself, your emotions, your feelings, and your external environment is what's going on in the home, your family, the people you're around. Um, and I, I, am of the same process with a lot of my clients. Um, because although my focus is more so on optimizing body composition, helping people lose fat, build muscle. Oftentimes you need to get people into, you need to help them get to the position, get into a position where they can comfortably move into changing their dietary behaviors, changing their diet. Um, because oftentimes people will have other issues to deal with and almost try and use a change of diet or change of exercise regime as a kind of a band-aid for a bullet wound, <laughs> you know? Um, and I think that having that a good long discussion with someone um, before making radical changes to their diet and getting to know them and, you know, focusing really on, as you say, stress management and their mindset and all the rest of it is really, really important. And I think the fitness industry has done a terrible job of this and a lot of personal trainers, unfortunately, as well. Um, I, I can say this because I used to work as a personal trainer and mm -hmm. I was that personal trainer that really just was like, you know, it's you just need to do this and it's as simple as that. And, you know, without looking at the whole picture of what a person's life is like and... Um, you know, when you when you mix that kind of with the fitness industry um, that shouts all about extreme diets, low carb diets, ketogenic diets and the sort of more extreme approach and not taking a look at some of these more um, deep rooted psychological problems, it, it does create an environment where people do get the wrong message. Um, and it can be tricky then for people to open up to individuals like yourself sarah as you mentioned because mm -hmm. there is this sort of guilt and shame attached to oh well i'm speaking to a nutritionist i better make sure that my diet looks as quote-unquote clean as it possibly can and oftentimes that's not what we want we actually um as nutritionists we we want to know kind of the honest truth of what your life is like because that's what's going to give us the clearest picture of 
what your routine looks like, the type of person that you are, your internal and external environment. And then once we have all that information, then we can actually start to make some long-term helpful plans towards getting you to where you want to be. Um, And I think that's kind of fits into some of the things that you mentioned there as well, Sarah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that it's quite tricky, isn't it? Because there's like tons of things that are wrong with the industry in terms of particularly in nutrition world with all these kind of fad diets and kind of quick fixes and things like that so this is what people expect I think you know they see all these different options available that it's well this person lost this amount of weight in this amount of time so how come I cannot do that and this is available so surely it's possible and things like that and then you know I think with I suppose that particularly in like maybe I'm speaking from my experience of my degree it's a lot about kind of the science of nutrition and how the body works and all these sorts of things. But you, there's very little, there is a bit, but not a huge amount about kind of the psychological aspect or behavior change. Like there's a very small maybe module about it, but it's not a huge focus. It's all about the food. So in terms of how people are trained, when that focus is kind of on the, the exercise and the, the food intake and the weight loss and calories and different things like this, it can be quite hard then to, to move away from that I think and I think that it's sort of like I suppose that whole thing of like calorie deficits and things like that it's like well this is how we make weight loss so all we have to do is you know go on this diet and cut it down whatever when actually there's a lot more to it and then these things can cause a lot of long-term kind of issues for people and have an impact on their relationship with food and an impact on you know their digestion I think these two things can be extrinsically linked quite a bit like if you're really worried about eating a certain food because it's going to maybe make you fat because such and such diet said so or such and such nutritionist or personal trainer said so um then if I eat that food I'm going to get fat and then I'm going to be really unhealthy that stress can also then result in issues with the digestive tract that you know there's lots of different stressors in terms of like lifestyle and our work and our study and our family but also food can be really stressful for people too so if they have these preconceived ideas like that with the gluten that gluten is going to cause me to be really unhealthy it's going to cause me to bloat it's going to cause me to be fat that kind of initiates that kind of stressful feeling in the body and the stress response that can then actually manifest those symptoms and have an effect on our digestion so I think there's just there's so many things out there that's quite confusing for people that I suppose we just have to try our best to sort of create that non-judgmental space for people and to kind of reassure people that not all nutritionists are like that and not all nutritionists are judgmental or going to tell you to cut all these things out or tell you these foods are bad or that you're a terrible person for eating these foods and I think in a sense that the industry can is shown to be changing quite a bit it's shifting a little bit but to be that sort of um kind of way whereas you know I think the old days of those like really kind of uh strict or strict diets and then the beating you up into losing weight or maybe on the way out a little bit or the kind of bad diets they're still there but I think our maybe newer sort of generation of PTs nutritionists are a little bit more kind of non-judgmental and accepting and um empathetic I suppose um but hopefully we can try can continue to create that sort of uh, environment for people that they can come and speak to us and actually feel comfortable telling us the truth about their diet and their current habits that that way then we can really help them properly and say if they can be as honest as possible then that's how we help and we can say look that's how it is now but this is why we're here this is why we want to make the change so 
going forward, this is how we can do that. And this is how we can improve those behaviors or change those behaviors to make them slightly more healthy or more useful to you. Hmm. Yeah. And I think taking it back a little bit, I suppose, to the relationship between the, I suppose, the relationship between stress and the digestive system. It's, it's very interesting because uh, most people don't think that their stress factors are affecting their digestive system in the way that it is. You know, I think we, we, you, you covered this a little bit at the start, kind of um, with your own story of your own experience with IBS. But can you talk a little bit about um, mindfulness and meditation and stress management techniques that you've personally found to be effective or effective with clients or from your own research? Is there anything that you can kind of tell us about that? really has shown to be effective from what you've seen yeah so I, I might start with the actual underlying mechanism of how stress affects our kind of gut health and IBS and different things so basically we all have this stress response or fight or flight response which is initiated by a threat so if we go way back into the days when we were kind of cavemen or cave women living in the wild when we were faced with a threat, which could have been a massive bear or a lion about to attack us, we had to be able to react really, really quickly. So our eyes and our body identify this as a threat. We need to react really quickly. So it does this by releasing a cascade of hormones, which initiates lots of different things, like your heart rate will increase to pump more oxygen around to your muscles. So you have the strength and ability to either fight the situation or to flee the situation. Your uh, breathing will increase because you need to get more oxygen in to get that around the body. And in other ways, it also affects different systems. So our body's going to have to decide in that moment really quickly, what is essential for my survival right now and what can wait until later on. And then in that sense, it's going to save the energy for the vital systems in that moment and shut off the ones that aren't so important. So in that sense, digestion is not important. We don't, your body doesn't care about digesting its food. It's going to save energy for fighting or fleeing the situation. So in this sense, things like our enzymes are going to be halted, the production of enzymes, production of digestive juices, anything that's in the body, any food that's already in there. If it's in your large intestine, it, your bowels might open to allow you to release that food to make you lighter so you can deal with the situation better. If there's food in the digestive tract that might be a little bit higher up, it'll just be left there sitting waiting until this stressful situation has been kind of overcome and then the digestion can have, can kind of... Uh, reinitiate itself so in that situation body is ready now we either fight the bear we run away in that situation we're probably going to run away then we get back to our little cave we're nice and happy and then we kind of the stressful situation has been dealt with then it initiates the kind of rest and digest kind of situation where then everything goes back to kind of normality homeostasis and our digestion can kind of take place again so a really good example of this is when somebody has maybe something coming up like an exam or um, they might have a presentation or something like that and you get that feeling of like butterflies in your tummy or the nervous kind of poo that's kind of your stress response in action saying that something stressful is coming we need to prepare so this is kind of in our up-to-date kind of life is now like you know an exam or a stressful partner or family member it could be stress around food it could be you know stress of eating something and that sort of a thing so basically, 
with this stress response, it's really useful in the right situations because it can get us out of something that's really a threat to our life. When this becomes something that's chronic or long term, that's when it causes issues and causes things like kind of issues to our health and things like that. So basically, when we're in this stress state, we really need to get back to normality. If we don't, it becomes chronic. And that's where, you know, IBS can become chronic and quite a, an issue or these digestive issues. So basically, our brain and our gut are intrinsically linked and they're constantly talking to each other through the gut brain axis. So basically, you might think your brain might say to your gut, hi, there's something stressful about to happen. Um, please prepare yourself. So that could be release whatever whatever is in there so we can run quicker. Then your gut might respond and say, hi, how are you? Things are all over. I'm really hungry. Feed me. So they're constantly in conversation like this through the gut brain axis. So basically, when we have like a stressed head, we have a stressed gut. When we have a stressed gut, we have a stressed, a stressed head. So the key to this is the stress management and things like that, like mindfulness or meditation and that. So the main thing with the stress management is there is research to show that mindfulness and meditation can be really helpful in this sense, can help us to manage our stress by bringing us back to that present moment. And the kind of underlying mechanism with that is, you know, it's taking you out of that stressful situation, out of that stress response and bringing you back to that rest and digest mode. So things are calming down and the kind of stress response has been kind of stopped so then we're kind of calm we're in the moment we're doing something that we enjoy and we're forgetting about the stressful situation some of the things that can be useful are things like doing yoga can be really helpful there are some there is research there to show that yoga can be as useful as the low FOMAP diet in IBS and I found personally that yoga has been a game changer for me um because my IBS is kind of based on kind of stress and anxious things having that kind of yoga to bring me again into that um mindful moment and that kind of slows things down manages the stress and then the other side of things the movement is really important for IBS and digestion so our digestive tract has loads of little muscles going up and down it these muscles need to be stimulated so they can keep the food going through two ways of, or three ways of doing that is having enough fiber having enough water and actually getting movement so this is why sometimes if we're not moving as much, we might feel a little bit heavier having that kind of feeling of bloated because food isn't moving as uh, smoothly through because we're not getting that movement. So the mindfulness and yoga are two really good ways for managing stress, particularly in IBS. Then other things include like anything that helps you to kind of unwind. So for some people, that could be exercise could be a way to unwind. Some people, it's just chilling out, watching Netflix. Some people, it's just going for a walk with a friend and having a chat. Some people that could be playing or listening to music, could be painting, could be cooking. Cooking can be a huge energy release once you find it, once you don't find it stressful. I think some people can find it quite stressful because they're new to it. <laughs> yeah. um, I've had this conversation with a number of clients, um, which at the beginning they found that, oh God, cooking is just, I don't get it. Why do people enjoy cooking? It's such a stress. And then they go kind of through the process and they realize actually once they kind of get to the point of understanding what makes them feel less stressed or how to manage stress and then they find they actually quite enjoy cooking because they've kind of made that time for themselves to have the time to do it and they find wow cooking can be such a relief because or a release sorry because you know you're making this meal you have that time to yourself you're focusing on chopping the veg making this meal following a recipe then at the end of it you actually have a product to say wow I mean I spent all that time making that thing and there it is in front of me and then it just makes the meal so much nicer when you've kind of had the time to really put effort and time into it so 
I think with the stress management, it really is dependent on the person. For some people, yoga is absolutely perfect. For some people, yoga is not for them at all. Um, same with meditation. I think it really does take a lot of time to to get into these things and see the benefit. Um, but it really just depends on what suits the person, what they like to do to chill out, uh, what makes them feel good. Because again, you could give somebody a list of things, do this and it's going to help you to chill out. It could be more stressful and adding uh, more things to their list that they've already got to get done. So I think it does mm. kind of take some time for the person to think about, okay, I really enjoy like doing exercise. Maybe that could be yoga or walking or maybe I really enjoy cooking or, you know, trial and error, I suppose, is kind of the main thing there. And once it's something that you enjoy rather than doing it because somebody told you, I think is the main thing there. Yeah. So I think one thing that we should all be very appreciative of is the fact that we're not running from lions in the savannah anymore. <laughs> um, yeah, absolutely. So, <laughs> so but I, I, I really like kind of how you described the the stress response um and how you sort of personified the the, the gut so it's like hey how are you hey brain i'm hungry <laughs> and that's that's literally what it's like <laughs> sometimes <Yeah>. what it, <laughs> sometimes it can be more of a growl than a hey how are you but um yeah and i, and I suppose <laughs> i suppose um you know a lot of it is to do with reading the signals that your body is giving you as well like Mm -hmm. i know for a lot of my clients they find that once they get a better handle on their hunger and fullness they're not leaving themselves going for long periods of time with no food and then gorging and stuff like that once once they get a better handle on okay if i eat this number of meals in the day um it generally helps my digestion and also obviously kind of as you mentioned earlier when we were talking about bread not stuffing yourself as well like and this obviously links into um you know, just just developing a healthy relationship with food and not not treating any foods or as forbidden, so that then you you're not as inclined to to, to go on a binge or anything like that. But um, yeah, so kind of taking it back to what you mentioned about meditation and mindfulness, I, I've spoken a, a lot about about these different concepts many different times um, on the podcast for, di- for different reasons. Like the second podcast was on brain health and then the third one was on general mental health. And they all took a, had had some kind of a, a role in, in those podcasts, but it is generally something that most people don't think about when we talk about digestive health is, oh, try to be more mindful or try to um, implement some kind of meditative practice in your day. And... I, I liked what you said as well about how it there everyone's different obviously and we're not all going to find the the same things effective but if you're not the type of person that really is into meditation or you just don't feel like it's something that you could do that's not to say that sitting down on your couch and you know focusing on your breath that's not the only form of meditation that you can do like I would recommend a lot of my clients that when they go out for a walk sometimes try not to listen to music or anything like that try and just sort of if you're lucky enough to be kind of beside uh 
place where there's lots of nature and stuff like that really sort of focusing on the present moment as you're as you're walking and listen to the birds and the the sounds of the rain or um the smells is coming through and and that in itself is meditative as well and those types of activities can be really really helpful um for managing stress overall and as sarah said a consequence of that is going to be improved digestive function and um reduction in bloating um so definitely if you're listening to this and you're thinking ah, i don't really think i'd be into meditation try whatever you feel helps you manage your stress better whatever kind of comes to mind as sarah said even if it's something like listening to music listening to relaxing music doing some sort of hobby that you find relaxing like playing the piano painting cooking Whatever you feel allows you to get into that parasympathetic state, as Sarah mentioned earlier, about not being in that stress mode, being in that rest and digest mode, that's what's going to put you in a much better position to digest your food and relieve symptoms of bloating. So um, I, I, you mentioned FODMAPs earlier, Sarah, Um and you also mentioned that you personally did not find the um, FODMAP diet or the exclusion of FODMAP foods um, to be that effective. But can you go into a little bit more detail on that? And can you potentially describe that kind of approach to someone that may be thinking about doing it or may have been recommended um, to follow a type of approach like that by a doctor or dietitian? Yeah, so the low FODMAP diet is basically there are some types of kind of carbohydrates or sugars that can be quite tricky for some people to digest. In the case of IBS, we have a kind of overly sensitive gut. So these kind of foods or these types of carbohydrates can be even more tricky for these people to digest. For some people that might result in bloating, for some people that might result in gas, it could be diarrhea or a combination of, or of two or three of these. So the thing with the low FODMAP diet is what it does is it kind of takes these carbohydrates. So it's fermentable, oligo, uh, disaccharide, monosaccharide, and polyols. So these are just all different types of sugars found in, found in different types of foods. So the aim with this is to try and eliminate these FODMAPs at different stages, eliminate them for maybe two or three weeks, and then we reintroduce them. The p- point of this is to take it out of the diet to see if these are maybe having an impact on your kind of IBS symptoms. And then after that elimination phase, we reintroduce them to see if it was that food that was causing that effect. And if it is, then we can say, okay, this is a food that maybe be a potential trigger for me. Then we look at how we can, how much like that we can actually tolerate of that. That way that you're not actually fully eliminating that food from your diet. You're just looking at how much can I tolerate and maybe keeping it to a minimum to kind of help with your symptoms. The one kind of problem with the low FODMAP diet is that it's really, really restrictive. It can be quite stressful for the person to kind of get to grips with this. Going out to eat anywhere and having, you know, a meal that is FODMAP free can be extremely difficult in a place like a cafe or a restaurant, which can kind of be a little bit socially isolating during this period. Then the kind of worry or stress of accidentally eating these foods can also play an impact on that sort of stress response. And then one other issue could be that inside our gut, we have trillions of beneficial 
microorganisms which have an impact on our digestion and all, lots of other things in our health. So when we eat, the fibre that we eat feeds these little guys. If we're cutting foods out, we can then have kind of results in potential, like killing off of some of these things. So the the kind of, um, we can, you know, affect the composition of our gut microbiome there, which can also lead to issues with IBS. So there's lots of different things there. So the low pump diet is a, a great approach that can be really, really helpful for some people. The main thing to remember with the low FODMAP diet is it is really difficult, it is really strict, and it's really, really important to get the support of a FODMAP trained dietitian and nutritionist to help you through this phase. That way you're kind of ensuring that you're getting all the nutrients required for basic health. You're getting the support through the difficulty of this diet, and you're also kind of getting that, you know, they can help you through that phase of reintroduction, how much to add in, how much to, making sure that you are reintroducing as well. Because I think with a lot of people, and I know this was a case for me for a while, where you eliminate all these foods, then you're stuck with this kind of short list of these are low FODMAP foods. And all of a sudden, this short list of foods becomes your diet and that's it. So, you know, that variety is lost, that sort of kind of diversity in the gut bacteria can be diminished a little bit. And then there's, you know, it can actually exacerbate the issue rather than fixing the issue. So the main thing I would say with the low FODMAP diet is do your research and actually get the support that you actually deserve to go along with that because it is difficult, it is stressful, it is hard, but there are plenty of kind of qualified people who can help you through that phase. Um, I would say that the low FODMAP diet should be kind of like the last route or last approach to this because it is really restrictive and really difficult, which can, on top of, you know, a busy workday or university or school can be quite quite stressful to add on to the pile of that. Um, so without saying that, I wouldn't say that the low FODMAP diet is bad and I'm not trying to badmouth it or anything, but just to be aware that it is quite difficult and to do go and get the support that you need and that you deserve. Hmm. Yeah, on episode six, myself and Rebecca Nolan were talking about the carnivore diet. And the carnivore diet is essentially an extreme version of the FODMAP diet <laughs> in that mm-hmm. you're just removing all plant sources from your diet and mm-hmm. that in effect has similar consequences as a person that might go on a FODMAP um, or low FODMAP based diet. But oftentimes, and this is still part of the complexities of nutrition that we don't understand, we all generally have foods that we're probably a little bit more sensitive to or create a little bit of that um, fermentation in the gut that creates bloating and some of these other digestive issues. But it doesn't, oftentimes it will not require you to do an extreme version um, of a diet like a carnivore diet um, or a FODMAP diet. Um, if If you've noticed that, say for example, you eat some red onion because red onion is one of those foods for me that creates issues <laughs> whenever yeah. I, I, I bloat up quite a lot when I eat red onion, but white onion is fine. But mm-hmm. say, for example, you um, eat a red onion and you notice, Jesus, I'm, I'm a bit bloated. And you can also take into account that you're not overly stressed or, you know, things are generally running quite smoothly in other areas of your life, um, then maybe that's a clue that red onion might be a little bit um, something that you should uh, avoid eating a lot of or um, try and swap for an alternative. Like for me, it's white onion. Um, or even in some cases, like cooking your food down a little bit more can can make it easier to digest. Um, mm-hmm. But as Sarah said, 
oftentimes the, the a low FODMAP diet is challenging, it's stressful, and it's something that you should only look into when you've sort of exhausted all the other options at your disposal. Um, but yeah, so outside of kind of the those FODMAP style foods, Sarah, is there anything else that typically creates issues for people um, in terms of like common things that they would have um, outside of those carbohydrates? I think it's, it's really individual, you know. Um, I don't really like to, to give a blanket kind of name of foods or that that cause issues because, again, that can sort of lead to that sort of nocebo effect that, oh, I heard in the podcast that this causes bloating, therefore this food may cause me bloating do you know that sort of way um yes. but yeah it just really depends on the person i'd say red onion is probably a big one um that can come up quite a bit and yeah i think it really is dependent on the person and they sort of have to figure that sort of thing out themselves and maybe discuss it with a doctor or a dietitian for themselves or a nutritionist to see if that is an issue or if it is just a food that maybe it doesn't really agree with me you know yeah Definitely. It's, um, it is, it is a highly individual thing, um, that you just have to do a little bit of trial and error with, but I think, uh, practicing those stress management techniques and trying to chew your food a little bit more and eating in uh, a relaxing environment and, and doing all of those stress management techniques, as, as we mentioned, mindfulness mindfulness-based eating techniques that we talked about um, before massively altering your diet is, is definitely um, a good idea. Um, so what about fiber then, Sarah? Can you tell us about fiber? What's the crack with fiber? Why should I eat fiber? And, you know, it, what's too much? What's not enough? Can you give us um, some, some recommendations and, and some advice on um, fiber for, for those of us that find it confusing? Yeah, so I think fiber is one food that I think if I could tell everybody in the population, the one kind of general recommendation is to try and increase your fiber intake. So fiber has lots of really beneficial effects. So fiber is really good for our gut health in terms of kind of keeps you regular, helps to bulk out that stool and keep you kind of regular and preventing constipation and things like that, which can also lead to bloating. It also feeds your gut microbiome or gut microbiome as you know, they're in our large intestine and have loads of beneficial effects to our health. Fiber can also help to keep us fuller for longer. So we actually feel more satisfied when we eat a meal when it's high in fiber. It keeps us satisfied and keeps those kind of aggressive hunger feelings away for a little bit longer. Uh, it can also help to manage the kind of um, blood sugar levels, preventing that kind of spike and dip, which can affect our energy levels and our hunger and things like that. It's also really good for our heart health. So fiber helps to reduce the kind of bad type of cholesterol, which puts us at risk of heart issues and things like that. So just so many great benefits of fiber that um, it's really important to try to get enough of the diet where we can. So fiber is another type of carbohydrate, which is basically not digested by the human body, but there's one type that called soluble fiber, which would be digested by by us and then the insoluble fiber is then digested by our gut bacteria which then leads them to fire out all these really beneficial um gases that help us be really healthy in terms of our mental health our mood and all these sorts of things so basically the recommendation would be to have 30 grams of fiber a day the current kind of general intake of the population in ireland is around 17 to 18 grams 
which is good, but could actually be better. So where am I going to find fibre? Well, fibre is in lots of different foods. So our fruit and our veg, particularly in the skins. So, you know, getting as much as fruit and veg and as possible into your diet is going to be helpful there. Uh, whole grain carbohydrates. So your whole grain bread. Another reason why bread is great. Um, our whole grain pasta, spaghetti, um, rice, all these sorts of things. Then in your oats and in your uh, noodles and different things like this. So we also can find them in our beans and peas and lentils. So just trying to get as much variety as possible in there is going to be really, really beneficial. So the different types of fibre in there are going to have different beneficial effects in terms of feeding our gut bacteria and what they're going to produce. The thing with fibre is that we can go a little bit too crazy too fast. So I think something I see quite often is we have a little discussion about fibre. People get really excited. Uh, they kind of go from zero to 100 and then all of a sudden we get all these kind of negative effects that actually turn out to be quite good. So if we increase our fibre too quickly, it can actually result in bloating, uh, distension, gas, discomfort, pain in the tummy and that side of things. So the reason for that is basically when we eat the fibre, it gets into our gut, our gut bacteria get really excited. They have a little party. It's like, yes, the food is back and they're kind of going a bit crazy and farting out all these really beneficial um, compounds which then results in us getting the kind of different side effects of the gas and the bloating and uh, for some people it could be diarrhea as well so starting small is the best way to go so if for example you currently three servings of fruit and veg per day maybe bringing that up to four and then each week adding a little bit more maybe starting with if you white sources of carbohydrates swapping to whole grain and again starting small starting slow and then seeing how you're kind of body reacts that how the gut reacts if it is reacting quite quickly and getting a lot of these effects just remember that that is normal and it, within a few weeks it will start to kind of settle down and get used to it the body just needs to adapt to these things main thing to remember is our guts are really really habitual and they really like routine so when their routine is you know messed up like for example when we were thrown into lockdown in the pandemic they react by being the same way that we do and Kind of react and have all these different issues like bloating or diarrhea or gas and things like that so these are kind of normal effects to happen when they've been shifted out of routine for example if we eat more fiber than it's usually used to so keeping that in mind and if it becomes a thing that's too much maybe honing back on the fiber and then starting again the next week with a little bit more basically the main thing there would be to eat your vegetables eat your fruit get some whole grains in there oats are really good as well beans peas and lentils and the main thing to remember is variety the more variety you get the more beneficial nutrients, vitamins, minerals you're going to get in the diet. And then also you're going to be feeding your gut microbiome, increasing their diversity. The more diverse they are, the healthier we will be. Super. That's uh, like, I suppose the the gut microbiome is really interesting. And it's, I suppose gut health and digestive health is an emerging area of research where and I, and I think that's important for people to know as well. Like, I think the recommendations that you made there um, is great across the board. Everyone should be eating more fiber. And I do think that f- increasing fiber or, sorry, not just increasing fiber, but getting adequate fiber every day is the best thing that you could be doing for your uh, microbiome, your gut microbiome. And again, as we were kind of saying earlier about some poor practices in the fitness industry there are some poor practices amongst 
alternative practitioners where they will recommend things that are good for your gut health or special diets that are good for your gut health when in reality the researchers are sort of clueless in a certain way about what specific recommendations we should be giving um, for gut health past things like the stress management um the fiber and some of the FODMAP stuff that we've talked about. So that is a, that is an important point to make as well. I think that be skeptical about some of the things that you see online with regards to to gut health. Um, but I do think what Sarah said there about fiber um, is kind of the the most important thing with regards to your microbiome specifically. But um, kind of on the note of some things that are recommended that may not necessarily be that helpful. What is your thoughts on probiotic supplements, Sarah? Yeah, great question. So as you said, the research is still really in its infancy at the moment. So, you know, the research, like these things take years and years and years before you can actually get a good grasp of what is going to be beneficial. The research is going to be changing all of the time because we're constantly finding out new things. So if somebody hears something one day and then, two weeks later it's completely different it's not anybody trying to trick you that is just where the science is at at that point and it's constantly being kind of updated with new research in terms of probiotics I think they got a huge kind of uh, surgeons a few years ago that they're the kind of best thing for health and these sort of things probiotics can be really helpful in certain situations so for example in certain types of IBS it can be helpful to try kind of improve the diversity of the gut there um if we have a case of kind of antibiotic associated diarrhea that can help improve kind of our diarrhea and to reduce the, the length of that issue. Uh, traveler's diarrhea can also be really helpful there as well. And then, you know, it's really good to remember too that when we're taking a probiotic supplement, the beneficial effects really only last for the duration that you're taking that supplement. So if you've got a supplement for 30 days, you're only getting those um those beneficial bacteria for those 30 days and once you stop then you know those beneficial effects won't fully last if that makes sense and that's not me telling you to take a probiotic supplement every single day because they're expensive the research Mm -hmm. isn't fully there to say that we need that um and as i said the best route to kind of having a healthy gut promoting diversity in the gut is to eat your the fiber getting as much diversity in all areas of the diet and as boring as it sounds you know managing stress sleeping well um, drinking enough water and again getting that diversity is kind of the, the main thing to remember there. So probiotics are great and can be useful in certain situations but by no means do, does every single person in the population need to be taking a probiotic to be healthy. Yeah and I, and I suppose it's as you say a few years ago they were kind of they came out as a panacea for different health problems that people were having it's like oh you've got this wrong with you just take probiotic you'd be grand <laughs> and yeah. uh, it, and i suppose it's it's the case with a lot of supplements um they're just i suppose marketed as a cure-all and it's just really not the case it's it's often a lot of marketing but you know mm-hmm. i think we will eventually get to a place where you'll be able to go into your dietitian or even maybe your doctor and they'll be able to do particular tests and then they'll be able to say okay based on what we've looked at in your stool tests you should take this strain of bacteria or whatever and i think that that's going to be great that's going to be helpful it's going to be very very 
um, it's going to be groundbreaking, as uh, very much so, for a lot of different health effects, especially for things like IBS. But we're not there yet, so um, just be um, skeptical with regards to a lot of the stuff that you see online with probiotics and gut health in general. But um, another one kind of on the topic of supplements, Sarah, a lot of people will rave about apple cider vinegar. What is your synopsis on that? I really feel bad saying this because so many people love it and they drink it every day, but there's no good research to back up that apple cider vinegar is good for our gut health. And if anything, it's actually could benefit or could be detrimental to our kind of the enamel in our teeth and it can actually cause um issues with our esophagus and pain and things like that. So I would say keep it for your salad dressings, but there's absolutely no need to be shooting it every morning before your breakfast. Yeah, that's I would I would share those uh, those <laughs> opinions on it as well. <laughs> it's uh, again another thing that's like oh it's good for weight loss, it's good for managing blood sugar, it's good for digestion, and it may like there 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 may be a handful of studies that show that it's help it has some sort of effect for managing blood sugar and digestion mm-hmm. but oftentimes with a lot of these supplements when you weigh up the cost benefit ratio it's just not mm-hmm. favorable you know mm-hmm. um and that's cost in terms of monetary but also cost in terms of apple cider vinegar doesn't really taste that nice <laughs> and yeah. as sarah said it can uh, create problems with your with your teeth and your esophagus and stuff like that um but yeah, so I think we will wrap it up there, Sarah. Um, thank mm-hmm. you very much for coming onto the podcast. And if people want to find out more about you or potentially get a little bit of help with symptoms of ABS or any other nutritional advice that they may need, where is the best place to get in contact with you? Yeah, so I do the bulk of my kind of work over Instagram. So my Instagram handle is at f.i.g underscore nutrition underscore so big nutrition is my term and it's an acronym for food is good so yeah if you just type in food is good nutrition into google as well you should find me there but instagram is probably where i'm most active and you can kind of see the bulk of my work there awesome so as usual guys thank you very much for listening to the podcast If you find it in any way helpful, please share it on your social media and tag myself and Sarah. So if you're using your Instagram stories, tag myself or tag Sarah using her handle that she just mentioned. And, you know, generally, if if you find anything useful in this, let people know about it. Because I think one thing that myself and Sarah, we were talking about earlier was the state of the industry and that it's changing and it's becoming better at creating a better view of food and less of these extreme approaches but one way to really foster that and help people in a way that's you know obviously less extreme and is going to be more helpful to them in terms of things that we spoke about in this podcast is to is to tell people about a podcast or an article that you may have listened to or read um and sort of letting them know about it because i think the more people know about some of these different things and they know the right and wrong answers in terms of 
some of the things that we talked about in this podcast i think that it helps change the industry as a whole and um it'll move us one step closer to a world where we don't have to rely on fad diets and crappy supplements to 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 do certain (laughs) things with our health um but yeah so i'm gonna leave it there sarah thank you again for coming on really appreciate it and guys thank you very much for uh, listening i was about to say watching there (laughs) but listening (laughs) um and we'll catch you in the next one